A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program today. And, you know, we could talk about a lot of things. We could talk about the package of gun control bills that uh, apparently yeah, the fix is in. The, the votes are already there in New York State. We could talk about the uh, House on Capitol Hill uh, pushing a number of gun control measures. But you know how I feel about all of them, right? I don't think any of them would do any good at reducing violent crime. Uh, they would, however, do uh, quite a bit of damage to our right to keep and bear arms. So. If you want some in-depth discussion on uh, some of the details of that legislation, I would encourage you to uh, head to BarryAndArms.com. We will be covering those stories throughout the day on the uh, website. But on today's Barry Arms Cam and Company, I actually want to dig a little bit deeper. I want to do something productive. I want to talk about what we can do that doesn't involve going after guns or gun owners or the Second Amendment. What we can do to ensure that our kids are safe at school, because supposedly that's what all of this discussion is about, right? And yet it seems like there's very little discussion about how to actually do that. Instead, we're hearing a lot of talk about, well, we just had universal background checks. No, it it wouldn't have applied in this case, but uh, it might apply in another case. Stop. We're going to talk James Eric Dietz. He is uh, with the Homeland Security Institute at Purdue University. He studies this issue in depth, and he has done a lot of research over the years Again, on the most effective ways to protect kids and staff in schools. Take a look and listen. Dr. Deeds, thanks so much for coming on the program, sir. I apologize for the uh, tech issues. We don't get to actually do this uh, semi-face-to-face. But I I think it's really important, uh, as I said in the introduction to this program, that, uh, you know, uh, given the the platform that I have, I don't just want to talk about the typical gun control debate, what we're seeing going on and uh, play out in Congress uh, and in the state capitals, because there really are substantive things that can be done to improve school security and school safety. And this is something that you've been working on for years there at the Homeland Security Institute at Purdue University. We, we, we sure have. Um, it seems that so much of the debate is, you know, two poles screaming at each other and not listening. And Really, my research has been trying to focus on how do we better analyze those policy choices that we can make uh, so that way when the choices are made, the outcomes are what we expect. Uh, we expect outcomes, for instance, in these school instances to be safer places for children to learn. And uh, so much of what's going on is not, um, not accomplishing that. Um, and, and my research has been simply about, you know, what's the value of a school resource officer? How do we compare that to other choices that might be made in the community? So so let's start there then, uh, because this is something that, you know, again, sort of plays out along political lines. There have been some cities that in recent years have, uh, like Philadelphia, for instance, uh, has taken steps to remove school resource officers from schools, believing that. Uh, it, you know, it, it makes kids fearful. It, it makes schools seem like, you know, prisons. Those, those are some of the common objections, right? That uh, school resource officers uh, don't actually provide an extra layer of safety, but may make kids actually feel uncomfortable. What has your research shown about the value of having a school resource officer in place when one of these targeted school attacks happens? Well, when, when the school attack happened, uh, the school resource officer from our research that's been published in a number of places now shows that we can reduce casualties by about 70%. 
Um, additionally, you can reduce casualties a little bit more by introducing concealed carry, even in small numbers in some of the classrooms. And we assumed a very conservative concealed carry estimate, of, you know, as um, many as 5%, but those teachers do not um, act like surrogates for law enforcement. They just protect the children in their classrooms, um, you know, where, where they are at in particular. And uh, that we were able to show can reduce casualties again by another five to ten percent, depending on sort of the exact levels of of carry and um, how many um, are there. Um, the great thing about doing this in a modeling environment is we don't have to we don't have to stress out children, we don't have to stress out parents or teachers, and we can test our policies over thousands of of these active shooter events, so we can be pretty sure that we're making the best decisions we can for a particular community. Originally, our models were set up so that way you could actually go in um, and run the model with your school environment, your school policies to better understand, um, you know, where you might be able to change outcomes, which is really what this, you know, what, what good policymaking about is let's change outcomes, um, particularly with school um, vulnerability of those school children. And the outcomes are changed by uh, reducing response time, putting those school resource officers in the classroom, or actually allowing some of the teachers to defend themselves where appropriate, where they feel comfortable doing so. You know, and, and, and you just mentioned something really important, uh, the, the response time. So if you've got a school resource officer on campus when an active shooter occur, you know, uh, appears, and that school resource officer does not engage the attacker, obviously that's not going to be as effective, right, as as immediately trying to engage and stop the threat. As we have seen uh, in Uvalde, where there was, you know, an hour-long delay uh, from the time that the first 911 calls came in to the time that the door of that classroom was breached, this obviously plays a major role in terms of reducing lethality and saving lives as well, right? You can't wait around you've got to engage as soon as possible. Exactly. Um, we want the school resource officer in the school, not spread between two or three or four or more schools. We want them in the school. Um, so they're, they're just a few minutes, or if, if not less, from the incident scene. And the faster that that um, mitigation uh, begins to occur, the, the fewer casualties we have. Our, our historical evidence shows that these shooters We'll shoot about three three individuals a minute until either their mission is um, is completed or they're they're engaged by somebody else with a firearm. Um, that and and th- those numbers seem to bear out time and time again. Some some a little faster, some a little slower. But um, this is a time game uh, with uh, average police response times in the country being um, you know in excess of five minutes, more commonly closer to ten minutes. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of casualties that we stack up waiting on uh, response to happen. So our, our, our work has showed that the school resource officer is a great benefit if they're trained well and if they're going to do the take actions um, promptly and correctly. And then when it comes to those armed school staff, it's interesting. There was a a poll out uh, by uh, the Trafalgar group asking Americans whether or not they'd be in favor of having armed teachers in in public schools. Um, They looked at, uh, I think they talked to 1,091 general election voters and 57.5% of them said that they believe that schools would be somewhat or much more dangerous without 
teachers who are legally carrying a firearm and are properly trained to use them. About 30 percent oppose that idea. And I think it's interesting that, you know, obviously, when we talk about things, we kind of talk about this at like a 50,000 foot level. But but when you drill down and you're and you're looking at, okay, again, what are those best practices for armed staff? Um, you believe that the best practice would be for them not to actually assume that role of the school resource officer and to try to pursue an engaged attacker, but to sort of shelter in place uh, with their students. But they are armed in case, again, that attacker breaks through the door, they can be met with an armed response. Is is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And and we felt that was appropriate given the level, the, the general level of training of Many with concealed carry. Uh, we did assume that um, the teachers that did carry would train with police in the area and would fire similar qualification tables to police. So they're making smart shots. But we also felt that there was a high probability that uh, that police responding to the scene might confuse the teacher with the shooter because they're looking for a civilian with a gun. And we felt when we started the research that there would be much less um, you know, blue on blue or, or blue on, you know, uh, supporting blue um, if, if the teachers took that defensive position in the classroom. And if you look at the, that kind of policy over many events, not just one event where uh, luckily or unluckily the shooter goes to a classroom that may or may not have an, you know, an armed teacher that's ready to, to, uh, to engage but um, over over many of the events, it does drive down the overall casualty numbers to to use that sort of policy. And we've actually seen some schools that have adopted just that kind of policy. They they lock the guns in biometric safes. Um, they make them available to a handful of trained teachers and administrators, and um, you know they they provide that surrogate role for um, you know to supplement um, the school resource officer. Again, it's back to re- it's back to response time. Is when can you as quickly as possible engage that that individual who's trying to harm the children? Right, and and again, I think it's important to know that there isn't necessarily. I mean, as you're indicating, there's not a one size fits all policy. School districts can adapt uh, to their own particular circumstances, right? So some districts might choose to have that that staffer uh, who's been you know vetted and trained. Uh, have that firearm on their person. Other districts might say, listen, no, there's going to be a location where if something happens, you, you'll have access to a gun, but we don't necessarily want you carrying one around. These are all decisions that can be made uh, by local school districts uh, themselves. But the, the the overarching policy of, hey, it would be a good idea to have at least some staff members uh, trained up, that, that's sort of a starting point. And I, I'm, I'm curious, did your modeling look at what happened? Because you said you were talking about like 5% of the staff uh, being uh, uh, armed. Did you look at what happened if it was, you know, 15%, 25% of the staff members? Yeah, we, we looked at 5 and 10, okay. and, it, and it, it, it scaled by proportion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you went 5 to 10, um, you know, you, you increase the savings by that incremental amount, again, with a shelter in place strategy. Um, and, and that was generally additive to the 70% that the school resource officer provided. And, and we, we also, at one point we, we had the models adaptable. So you could put in this response time for your community. So, uh, we, we anticipated the idea there might be a community that just decides they don't want 
the firearms in the school, but they don't mind the officer in the parking lot, or they don't mind a modified patrol maybe near the school, which could have the same outcome, you know, but not have the officer in the school. Um, we have some urban areas with great um, vertical density, um, and the schools in those areas, you know, there just might be more density of police. The response times are driven down because they don't have as far to go, but, you know, depending on traffic and those kinds of things. So, so we anticipate that the model could be used to better inform um, the discussion between the school administration and between the responding police departments to make the best decisions for the school. Again, with the idea, how do we get, how do we get the response, the appropriate responder for that community there faster? Um, and, you know, what risk are we taking? Obviously, we're not going to drive this risk to zero, but we, we darn sure should be driving it towards um, some sort of minimum that all of us can, can accept. This 20 and 30 students that are at a time is certainly um, something that we need to improve upon. Uh, absolutely. And, and again, I want to make sure I've got the numbers correct. Based on your research, your modeling, with a school resource officer in place, able to respond with, let's say, 5% of, of staff being armed and sheltered in place with students, you said that the, the lethality of these types of incidents can be reduced by 70%. Was that the figure that you used? Uh, well over 70, 70% just by the school resource officer wow. and another 10% depending on the concealed carry percentage. Okay. Have you looked at, uh, you know, one of the other big topics of conversation um, outside of the, you know, talk about gun control is is physical security of the schools. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about, well, maybe we need to limit the the entrance points. Uh, maybe we need to uh, expand the exit points uh, while, while limiting the, the number of places where people can get in. Have you done any research in terms of what we can do to harden up? Uh, the the physical security uh, beyond school resource officers and armed school staff. Yeah, we we, we did that as well. We we we've we've had a couple of studies that we've done that kind of work. We've looked at the armed the, the vestibules and the um time um the, the the time cost to the intruder for having some of those obstacles, just like just like my military time. We don't put obstacles on the battlefield because we think it's going to stop somebody. We just put them, we put them up the obstacles out to slow up the, the intrusion or the attacker. And so those, those ideas of adding vestibules, adding uh, ballistic glass uh, to those entrances slows up the intruder. Um, if not stop or, or dissuade the intruder from actually, um, you know, attacking the school. So th those certainly can, also add to that time and you can come come up with varied estimates of how much time it costs them we we looked at locked doors generally costing about a minute um the the vestibules perhaps uh, just slightly more than that depending on the technology that's available there interestingly we even looked at gunshot detectors in the schools and were able to show that just a simple gunshot detector in the school provided a considerable savings of life because the gunshot detector is pretty specific to a firearm. It's also pretty unfallible. Um, you know, it, it, it has very low um, rate of false alarms, false positives or negatives. And it basically gets the police moving as soon as the gunshot uh, can happen, it would happen. Um, frequently we find with many of these active shooting events, especially if the staff are not 
really highly trained. Um, it may take several minutes just to make that initial public safety access point or 911 call um, to get police rolling towards that site. And all that time is then available on top of the police response time uh, if there's no resource officer in the school. So um, there, there are a number of kind of simple technologies that we have that can help um, you know, reduce the casualties and improve the response. We also looked at um, grants. Um, I'm in Indiana, Purdue University is in Indiana. Uh, we looked at um, some of the, the grants that were used that were applied in Indiana to help provide for school security. And there's been millions of dollars offered to schools to, to do these things. And we found that there were really three buckets that money was being expended for. Um, one, which was the lion's share of the money, probably a little over 50%, were to help fund the school resource officers. The second was for construction, for technology, um, and for those armed vestibules, uh, improving uh, door entry um, you know, situations. That was maybe uh, 40%. But uh, amazingly, only, only um, uh, about 5% was used for training. Um, and that was really where we think some of the, the highest payoff gains can be found is by making sure the staff, uh, the students, uh, the administration, and the police are all trained to respond effectively and quickly to this. Um, we've found by analyzing run-height fights, for instance, that sheltering in place in most situations is um, – is a poor strategy for, you know, improving survivability. Sheltering in place, just as what recently happened in Texas, generally um, or can turn out to be everybody who sheltered in place where the gunman ended up uh, becomes a casualty. Yeah. And we we really, I think, need to go back and revisit some of Run, Hide, Fight and try to figure out that, you know, it really ought to be, I would think, um, you know, based upon our research, is maybe it's run, run, run. We hide when we can't run anymore. Um, we, we, we fight if we really make a lot of bad decisions, Yeah. but, uh, the, the worst of the decisions would be the, the standard shelter in place. Um, especially if it becomes, you know, you know, run, hide, fight, pick one, um, shelter in place might seem to be the most logical. And, um, that, that unfortunately is not one that has a great outcome, at least from what we've seen in modeling and also from what we've seen, um, with the, alarming increase in these kinds of things, but we, we see it time and time again, the shelter in place is not um, necessarily doing what we need it to do. Uh, unfortunately, you're right. And again, I think that gets back to response times. I would imagine it's even worse if you don't have a school resource officer in place, because then it's going to be, you know, many more minutes before the, uh, the there is an armed response uh, against that attacker. Uh, Dr. Deese, listen, I could talk to you about this for uh, for hours, but I do appreciate you coming on the program today, and I look forward to having you back again very soon. I appreciate all of the work that you're doing here uh, at the Homeland Security Institute at Purdue University to, to help improve school safety and, and ultimately protect our students and the staff at, uh, at, at our schools. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for allowing me to join you today. Many thanks to Dr. Deese for joining us on the show today, and uh, we're going to have him back again in the near future because this type of research just doesn't get talked about. Uh, and again, I think this is really important if the goal is to save lives and not just pass gun controls so Democrats can say, look, we did something, quote unquote. Now let's turn our attention to today's armed citizen story, our recidivist report, uh, and our good deed of the day. We'll start 
with our uh, recidivist report from Ohio, where the uh, ex-police chief in Addison, Addiston, Ohio, has been sentenced to three years probation for illegally trafficking machine guns. That's right. In federal court, mind you. While the Biden administration talks about the need to crack down on rogue gun dealers and, uh, you know, go after uh, folks who are uh, breaking the law. Here's what's actually happening with the Biden administration. You've got a former police chief who was involved in this scheme where he would buy machine guns. Yeah, real machine guns, not not semi-automatic firearms, but actual full auto select fire machine guns for the Addison Police Department. Only he wasn't really buying the machine guns for the Addison Police Department. Instead, he would get these guns and he would turn around and resell them to a couple of gun dealers in Indiana, uh, at times making 600% profit on these sales. Ultimately made about $11,500, I think. But the plan was to uh, to purchase more than 200 of these machine guns. Prosecuted in federal court. And uh, yeah, on Wednesday... Judge hands down a sentence, three years probation, including six months home confinement. Basically, he was he's been grounded by Uncle Sam for six months. And what's amazing, I, I've got a piece at Barry and Arms. I wrote about this this morning because it just drove me crazy. The ATF and the U.S. attorney are praising the sentence that this guy received. This is going to send a message. Is it? What message is it going to send, do you think, when you're eligible for years in federal prison and you walk away with three years probation, oh, it does send a message. I just don't think it sends the message that supposedly the Biden administration is wanting to send to uh, violators of our gun laws. So again, rather than putting new laws on the books, new federal felony offenses, right? Why don't we take a look at what's actually happening right now? Because there is some serious rot that needs to be addressed. And if the goal were actually public safety, maybe the Biden administration would be looking into these things. But I don't think the goal really is public safety. I think the goal is more gun control. It's looking for that political win as opposed to real public safety. So, no, I don't expect that heads will roll at DOJ or ATF over this slap on the wrist for a uh, machine gun trafficking scheme. Now, today's armed citizen story. From Chicago. Don't have a lot of details here, but what we do know is that a Chicago man shot and killed uh, a, a man who he found in his garage, who apparently confronted him with a knife. Police are still investigating, but Fox 32 in Chicago says it was around 2 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, a 36-year-old man inside his garage in the Logan Square neighborhood when a 53-year-old man armed with a knife approached him. That's when the homeowner pulled out a gun, shot the offender who was pronounced dead at the scene. Victim did not sustain any injuries. Detectives are investigating, but again, at this point, it appears to be a case of self-defense. We will uh, follow up with any details as they emerge. And finally today, our good deed of the day, Ocala, Florida, where two police officers in the right place at the right time weren't able to do the right thing to save a little child, six-day-old infant, from choking to death at a restaurant there in Ocala. Officers Michael Coughlin and Hannah Patterson were dispatched to a Golden Corral Saturday night. They got there just a little bit more than a minute after the call came in. Hannah Patterson said all I could think about was the child. When the officers arrived, um, they saw people outside who were frantic. She said she was taken into the dining room where the mother was with her six-day-old son. 
Patterson said the boy's mom almost ran by her, but she's been able to stop the woman and take the baby from her. The child who was born prematurely had started choking while it was being fed breast milk. Hannah Patterson said she flipped the child on the back, put him on her left knee, had him on an incline so that whatever he was choking on would come up. Uh, At the same time, Patterson's patting the boy's back. She said he wasn't making any noise. He was purple. His eyes were shut. But after a moment, Officer uh, Coughlin took over, followed the uh, same procedure, and the child eventually responded to the treatment and started crying. Anna Patterson says, I told dispatch he was awake and alert. Child was making noises. His eyes were wide open. Uh, Both she and Coughlin remained at the restaurant as EMTs made their way to the uh, facility, took the child, began treating him, taken uh, by ambulance to a local hospital. Uh, and apparently is going to be okay, thankfully. Hannah Patterson says, although she was nervous and felt pressure, her aim was saving the child's life. She said uh, it was a sigh of relief when the baby started crying. So in the right place at the right time, we'll unable to do the right thing. Uh, Ocala, Florida officers, Hannah Patterson and Michael Coughlin, we thank you for your very good deed. That is all we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I mean, not that it nothing. But I appreciate uh, you being with us, and I look forward to uh, seeing you again on Monday. Don't forget that we will be updating the website throughout the weekend at BarryAndArms.com with the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. And it is critically important to stay informed and engaged right now. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber. Just go to BarryAndArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. And you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership, which not only helps support the independent pro-Second Amendment journalism we're doing at Bearing Arms, but as our way of saying thanks also allows you to get access to exclusive news stories, commentary, stuff you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter. It does make a difference. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. So thank you very much. Have a good weekend. We'll see you soon. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.